give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we get into the text this morning. We love you, God. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Amen. Um, so we're getting into, into Mark here, and uh, t- today marks a, it, it, there's a change in the way that we've been, um, this is the last part of, I would say, maybe the first section of Mark. Mark is very fast-paced, as we have mentioned a couple of times. Just This will, might be the last time that I re- reiterate what we've seen so far in Mark, uh, but just to get you caught up because there's a transition that's about to take place. Mark starts with uh, him telling you, remember there's a guy writing this, this guy named Mark, the gospel according to Mark. Who's Mark? I don't know who Mark is. He must have been some type of student of Peter, and that's what church history tells us, is that this individual was a, was a person that was a pupil of uh, Peter. And so he's getting this eyewitness account of Peter, you know, Jesus' right-hand man. Um, and so Mark is believed, I believe, there's all sorts of stuff that you can uh, research and study on this, but Mark, I believe, is the template or it's the outline for the other Gospels. Uh, they knew of Mark's writing and they used it and then they filled in the gaps uh, with their own perspective of what happened. And so that you've got this dual reality with the text. You have this both and type deal with the Bible. You've got the inspiration factor that this is God's word, God speaking through uh, the Holy Spirit, and you've got the human author in the creation, which God created, right? Human beings that are fully uh, participant in the image of God. And so you have this, this inspiration spectrum of uh, God participating with the human author. And the, the, there's a medium that's happening there uh, that, that you have the ability to go and read this. We have a couple layers of barrier because the Bible was not written in English. It was written in ancient languages, which weren't ancient when you were in ancient world, right? They were uh, the common language of the day. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Jewish people uh, had uh, wrote their texts on the scrolls and it was uh, in tablets and it had come down uh, through the, uh, the time period. By the time you get to Jesus, because Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and then Aristotle's student Alexander the Great uh, made the whole ancient world at that point Greek. And it was called Hellenization. You guys remember that from history class? Uh, Alexander the Great conquered the world, and the language was the Koine Greek. It was the common language of the people. Which, by the way, Galatians 4.4, Paul tells us that it was at the right time that God sent Jesus into the world. Rome had built roads, so there was this ability for uh, the message to be taken uh, in that time period. It was the perfect time for God to send Jesus into the world. The Koine Greek language made it possible for people to be able to communicate uh, across large land masses and um, Interesting trivia, you know, we think of, have you ever mailed something and, and, and you're like, where it got lost in the mail? Um, I guess you could get from one, one part of the empire to the other side of the empire, you could actually get a piece of mail uh, across uh, in, in seven days, which I thought that was pretty impressive because of these Roman roads, right? And, um, and so we have a couple of barriers between us and the reality in which this revelation comes, because that's what it is. You think Genesis is the first book of the Bible, which it is, but it's, it, it, Revelation is the end of the Bible, but it's actually Genesis is the revelation. So as you move through the text, it's all revelation. It's all God unfolding to you about who God is, what kind of character this God has, what kind of people this God wants to create. 
And of course, this is the carrying of the story by the time we get to Jesus of God working within a nobody named Abraham, his descendants, and then through the prophets because Israel drops the ball a whole bunch of times. But what we find out throughout the text is not this God that's ready to squash everybody. We find out that Yahweh is a God who goes after the oppressed. They cry out in Exodus for deliverance. And this God, by his actions, the name Yahweh, is this picture of a God who goes to deliver those that are oppressed. And so as we move through the biblical story down to uh, the time of Jesus, we have all of this backstory that you have to kind of get caught up on. But I'll spare you from, from all of that. We've got a couple barriers. We've got the Old Testament we've got to understand. We've got to understand what God did with in Israel. We've got this language barrier. We don't, most of us don't know Hebrew, nor do we know Greek. I've done one class in each of those, and that was about all I could take. Because uh, uh, that you have to devote a lot of time. It's like learning a, an instrument. Um, anybody speak double language in here? Anybody dual, bilingual? Is that that's the proper way? What do you speak, Arn? See, I'm jealous. I can't even speak English or write English very well. So, but that's a reality. The Bible was not written in English, and so Greek is an interesting language because. We like the um, metaphor illustration to say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but it's, it's more so that with like Greek, one word is worth a thousand pictures. And so you have to kind of use your imagination in the interpretation process. And it doesn't mean that you're just being loosey-goosey with the text. It just means that there's a barrier and that there's a process to interpretation. There's a difference between, hang with me here on this, I'm just going to give you that this is free. I'm not charging anybody for this, Okay. This, this is free stuff right here. There's a difference between Christian doctrine and Christian theology. Christian doctrine is what we pass down through the ages from the apostles, those that had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. We hand down through the church Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus fully God, fully man. We carry that gospel down through the ages. Now, that's the Christian doctrine portion, and we use lots of different language to talk about. We use dogma. We use these, these big theological words. Like I said, stay with me. So this is that vein. But then there's this other side, and it's called Christian theology. Christian theology, the word theology just means the study of God, and it's a commenting, it's individuals in a time period landlocked in the space in which they live. Josh Kilsch is landlocked in 2019, uh, born 1984, and this is the world in which I grew up, right? And so I'm landlocked to make my interpretations through those barriers as I go to the text. But I have to be aware of those lenses that I bring to the text, or I will be, uh, to my detriment, not understanding what I'm actually reading. Or I'm going to put my spin on it. I'm going to invite you to my cult, and we're all going to put mushrooms hats on and do LSD, right? We don't want to do that, right? So there's this acknowledgement that we have to have when we come to the text and it's that the Christian theology is not the same thing as Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine is what is included in the creeds, the early creeds of the church, the first seven ecumenical councils of the church. But Christian theology is the individuals at every period, at 300, at 500, at 1,000, at 1,300, 1500, Reformation, all the way up to 2019. There's people commenting on the doctrine as the Christ is being handed down through the church. And there's all sorts of splinters and 
uh, mutations that happen along the way. And church history does preserve a lot of that for us. The text is actually very well preserved for us. And so I digress into all of that to say that when we come to the text... We have a lot of things to sort through, and remember that this is where we arrive here in 2019. And if I just say it's the Bible and we just go with it, uh, for a lot of people that's okay, but I'm trying to give you a little bit more um, understanding where I'm coming from. Mark is the template for the other Gospels. It's very short. It's fast. And uh, we have been walking through what he's telling us about Jesus. The key thing that we highlighted was that the sky rips open at Jesus' baptism. God is on the loose. That's the picture of the Greek there. Remember the the thousand pictures that that the words are giving us? The word in Greek is schizo. It's ripped. It's torn. It's not going back together. Why this is important is everything I was just telling you about this movement of God chasing after broken people. God is actually coming into the world based off of the whole story timeline of everything that was happening in the Old Testament. Which, by the way, we call gospel, which is, it means, good news. It's good news that God does not leave humanity in our death state, in our sin state, in our brokenness. This is a God that is chasing and and pursuing each and every person that is created in God's image, which is all. It's everybody. And so the sky rips open at Jesus' baptism. The the Spirit of God comes into Jesus, and God is now on the loose in Jesus. That's what Mark is telling us. And Mark uses his own language, and he he goes about it uh, his own way comparatively to the other Gospels, even when he's telling you a same story that had been contained in one of the other Gospels. He uses this word and over and over and over. And it's funny because this week as I was rereading Mark, uh, I was just chuckling to myself, which I do every time, when it says, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then, and then, and then. 8% of the New Testament has the word chi, Greek word chi, which means and, and it's because of Mark's 16 chapters. That's trivia, but it's just, it, it puts it in perspective. Mark is moving fast. All the Gospels are doing one thing. They're trying to tell you about Jesus. Now, I spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people out in our culture, whether they're Christian or they're non-Christian. I spend a lot of time talking to them, and I love just bringing up Jesus. Because Jesus has so many different flavors, depending on who you're talking to. Or what they were taught or what they caught along their spiritual faith journey or just being in an American culture. Uh, their understandings of Jesus. But when you come to the text, this is where we actually arrive at what we know, what we have about this person named Jesus. Mark is trying to get you to respond to this Jesus, and all the Gospels are moving in one direction, and they're all headed towards Jerusalem. They're all headed towards the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, if I was to take you to a local prison, and I was to walk you up and down the aisles and say... This is the stuff of God. And then I took you to a place where they do executions in this prison. And I said, this is the stuff of God. You'd you'd be like, immediately, you should, even though you've been raised in church, you should immediately be feeling like, this guy's a little nuts. It's not, that does not seem logically, that's not how things seem they should be. Either I'm a nut Or that this in some mysterious way is the reality. Before we even got out of chapter 1 of Mark, John the Baptist, the one that was testifying to the light, he is handed over. We'll catch up with him pretty soon when Herod takes his head off. Because John calls him out for having the girl dance for him. Okay, It's a real morbid picture. 
But before we even get out of the gate, Mark is telling us that John the Baptist is being handed over, which is a foreshadowing of where Jesus is headed. God's shown up in the flesh. God's on the loose. What's going to happen to this God on the loose in the human experience? What's going to happen to Jesus? Well, he's going to be handed over as well. And then because as we move through Mark, we find out that he chose all these people and invited them, as we saw in these first four chapters, these disciples. He's bringing them and saying, inviting them to follow him. And guess what their, their fate is too? They're going to possibly be handed over. If you go back through church history and you, and you look at each one of the disciples... Now, at the time Jesus is arrested, right, when Jesus is handed over, they all flee and take off, except one of them. They, they all abandon Jesus. But after the resurrection, which, by the way, is validity or proof for faith, because why would you die for a lie, right? These disciples stand up and they actually are martyrs, they're witnesses. They actually go to their death defending the, the proclamation that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. There was no reason, reason to make this, uh, this up as a fairy tale. This was something that they uh, could have already been, because they had already abandoned Jesus at the cross, right? But you have these accounts of like James being sawed in half. I mean, this is like graphic horror history. But if I was to walk you down a, a state prison and take you to the execution room and I say, this is the stuff of God, this is, you'd, you would be in question. But that's exactly what the gospel is telling us, is that things are not as they seem. Jesus has to start talking in a different way because there was an expectation based off of all that stuff I was telling you about the Old Testament. They had these expectations about what was going to be actually coming down to the present in the sense of God showing up or God sending somebody to show up, a Messiah, to deliver them from Roman rule and oppression. So we've, we've watched that a couple of times. And Jesus arrives on the scene and he doesn't want to be found out too quickly. Because he's got a message, he's got to build these guys up, he's got to get these disciples ready for the mission that's ahead to go and spread these seeds. I read this last week and it's fitting for where we're going this morning. When we think of parables... Parables are like riddles, and they can be really frustrating. And all of last week, we looked at when Jesus stood up to teach. He went on the boat, and the people were standing on the shoreline, and they were in the soil. And Jesus starts talking about this really generous farmer just throwing all the seed out. Jesus told stories, and as it turned out, he was a very good storyteller. His stories, as good stories always do, they penetrate our imagination and take on lives of their own in us. We find ourselves often without being aware of it, inhabiting the world of the story. Now Jesus has us where he wants us, understanding life from his point of view, seeing ourselves, God, and one another from the inside, from the inside, the kingdom of God. It is the devil's own work to take the stories of Jesus that he told, and the many other stories that provide so much of the content of our Bible, and distill them down into a truth or a moral that we can then use without bothering with the way we use them, unconnected from the people whose names we know or the local conditions in which we have responsibilities, apart from what we know about Jesus, who tells the story. The devil is a great intellectual. He loves getting us to discuss ideas about God. He does some of his best work when he gets us de so deeply involved with the ideas about God that we are hardly aware that while we are re reading or talking about God, God is actually present with us and the people whom he has placed in our lives to love are right there in front of us. All the gospel accounts present Jesus as a storyteller. 
The stories that Jesus told have a style all their own. We call them parables. Without parables, Jesus did not speak to them. Matthew 13, 34. A parable is a way of saying something, and, and stay with me. I know I'm reading you something, but I know that's, it feels like you're in classroom. Just stay with me on this. A parable is a way of saying something that requires the imaginative participation of the listener. It requires you and I. They are brief stories that Jesus created more or less on the spot as he was talking with people on the road. The word parable literally means something thrown down alongside of, and our first response is, what is this doing here, right in front of me? We ask questions, we think, and we imagine. Parables appear in quick, precise strokes. A parable is feeble. Almost all the power is in the one who hears it. We start seeing connections, relations. A parable is not used to tell us something new, but to get us to know some, notice something we've overlooked, even though it was been there right in front of us for years. Or it is used to get us to take seriously something we have dismissed as unimportant because we have never seen the point of it. Before we know it, we are involved. A parable keeps the message at a distance, in the shadows. It slows down comprehension, blocks automatic prejudicial reactions, dismantles stereotypes. A parable comes up on the listener obliquely and on a slant. Most parables make no explicit reference to God or to the kingdom of God. There are stories about farmers, judges, victims, coins, sheep and prodigal sons, attending wedding banquets, building barns and towers, and going to war, a friend who wakes you up at the middle of the night for a loaf of bread, the courtesies of hospitality, crooks, beggars, and manure. Now, I read Eugene Peterson again because... Whenever you come to the parables, and if you have not read Mark, even if you've read Mark this week, you read these parables and you're thinking, what in the world did I just read? What you need to know is that Jesus, this is the way Jesus spoke. So remember, remember, I'm out talking to everybody and everybody knows about Jesus. Or they have a character, they have an understanding, or they have an idea of who Jesus is. But then when you actually ask them, well, how did Jesus teach? What you find out is that he told stories about farmers, judges, victims, coins, sheep, prodigal sons, attending wedding banquets, building barns and towers, going to war, a friend who wakes up in the middle of the night for a loaf of bread. That's not what I usually think of when I think of Jesus' teaching methods, right? But this is how Jesus comes. And so a couple of moving parts, a couple of ideas, and I know I've probably lost a couple of you, is that Jesus is stepping into a world that has so much baggage in history. A lot of it's good, and a lot of it's just so complex. This is a real economic moment in time and space, the first century. Rome has power over everything. There is a partnership with the temple because of the exchanges that happen there and the money changers and they're making lots of money based off of the sacrifices because at every point in human history, people have wanted to know, what do I have to do to be right with God? There's inscriptions in the ancient world that say, to the unknown God. Or these poems that talk about, hey, if I've offended you, God, or gods, what do I do to make myself right? Because the longing of humanity is to be made right with God. The temple is creating this money experience for the Jewish people. Herod is the puppet king, which we will find out. And the whole priestly rule with Caiaphas and the Sadducees and even the Pharisees start to plot with the Herodians to kill Jesus. Everything is moving towards the state penitentiary with an execution moment. And that crazy part about it is, is when we think about the Bible, or we think about God, how great God is, because God is great. We sang that this morning, right? How great is our God? God is great because of God's character, because God's actually not a crook. 
No matter how many people that have proclaimed to follow God, actually we're sinners and, and all of us in some ways are rebels and crooks, right? But God's character is holy. He's different. He's got, you can cash this God's checks. So the good news, why God is so great is that I am broken and messed up. And this God chases and pursues, rips the sky open, steps into the creation, walks into the state penitentiary, goes to the execution, the tool of execution in the ancient world, climbs up on it, dies, says, I forgive you, and invites you to step into that story. Now, imagine Jesus just coming out and saying that. Well, I'm going to go die on the cross so you can go to heaven, so you don't go to hell, right? Jesus never, that's never the language of the, test, of the New Testament. Jesus is speaking about farmers and judges and victims and coins and sheep and prodigal sons, attending wedding banquets, building barns. He's stepping into places he shouldn't step because everybody else is contagious, right? The lepers are contagious. The people that are tax collectors, they're contagious. The prostitutes, they're contagious. Right? That's the whole religious perspective. But when God shows up, God rips open the sky, God steps in, and God shows up, and God starts acting and moving and going into the creation, into where people are actually needing God to show up. The only time Jesus talks about this place of being separated from God is usually to the religious people that think they've got their box figured out. And he's inviting everybody else. He actually, there's a parable about this wedding banquet, and he says, hey, he invites all these people, but they're like, ah, too busy. Uninterested, didn't see it, don't care, it's boring. And they go ahead, go out to the streets and go get all those people. The people that would never be invited to that kind of event. We're going to make a turning point as we move into the rest of Mark. And this is basically the first time we've seen Jesus talk in parables. He did a little bit when he's questioned about the Sabbath. He throws some riddles at, at the Pharisees. He speaks kind of directly to them. This is a continuation of last week, and I spared you from reading those 20 verses all at once today. Um, what, I, what I want you to see is this, the context, so that if you ever come back to this, that you're going to go, oh, there was something there, and I might miss it if I'm not careful. Jesus said something in last week's text. Remember, he, he talks about the seed going out, this Farmer throwing out the seed. He throws it all out. Then all these things happen to the seed that gets on these bad soils. The birds come and eat it up. Some gets on the rock. It, it goes up and then the sun scorches it. It kills it. it it's dead. Then, you know, there's, there's actually there's, uh, some of the seed that actually falls on good soil. It has the ability to go deep. It has a multiplying experience of producing a crop. And Jesus just ends it. He just stops. He says this parable and then he just stops. And he says, hey, I hope you hear what I'm saying. So Jesus talks in a riddle, and then he's like, I hope you get it. Hope you make it. It's great. Not very clear, Jesus. But that word here happens over and over and over through the Greek text here. Verse 10, this is from last week. When he was alone, the 12, 
And the others around him, so the 12 disciples, some of those uh, we saw him call directly, and then he has those other, uh, that we, we've, we've met the, the other 12, and then he's got even other disciples, those that wanted to know more, that wanted to follow Jesus, not just because he's, well, there's, there's a whole reason that he's got a crowd. He does miracles, um, he says crazy things that they're like, oh, this is, this is interesting, new religious teacher in town. But he's got the close with the 12 as the gospel unfolds. Verse 10 says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parable. Jesus, why are you talking in riddles? Why are you talking in story form? And Jesus said to him, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah 6 and he says, so that they may ever be seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This, that text is quoted at the very end of Acts. It's quoted all over the place from Isaiah chapter 6. And I know that you, I'm losing some of you. You're gonna, we're going to have to get coffee. We're going to have to unpack this some more. Just stay with me and just be like, hey, he's excited about it. So that's great. Isaiah, God tells Isaiah that he's going to have to go preach to a whole bunch of people that aren't going to want to listen to what he says. And so there's irony in the text. There's almost this joke with, with God saying, yeah, because that's, why would anybody want that? It's like God's being sarcastic in the text. Like, why would anybody want to be forgiven? Because the reality of the human experience is that all of us want to be forgiven. We all want a God to chase us down and say, hey, you're forgiven. You, you can be made whole. Hey, you can have a future. Jesus is actually quoting this. Yeah, yeah, the reason I speak in parables, yeah, because, you know, otherwise if I just spoke plainly, if I just said, hey, I'm God, if I just said, hey, I'm going to the cross, the Roman tool of X, I'm going to the state penitentiary because I'm going I'm to offend all the religious establishment, which is going to cause commotion and probably instability in the empire. I, I, I just, you know, if I just come out and say that, you read this, and if you have the wrong set of glasses, you're like, oh, God wants to keep people in the dark. This is why I didn't read you both sections because they're very long. Let's pick up the text for today. I know that there's some verses here. I promise I, I will try my best not to digress, okay? Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Still same scene from last week. Jesus said last week that he said many things to them in parables. That's Mark chapter 4, verse 2. This is a continuation of Jesus speaking in these stories. Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under the, a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And then Jesus says this again. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Wait. Last week, Jesus quoted Isaiah saying, well, I, I'm not going to let you in on the, the secrets because then everybody would want to be forgiven. There's this irony, and then now we have Mark actually complimenting that and saying that that's really not Jesus' heart. Jesus is actually saying, you don't just go stick a lamp underneath a basket. By the way, in the ancient world, that would cause a house fire, right? In the Greek, it's actually talking about a, an individual with this... With, when, when it says, do you stick a light underneath a basket, Jesus is actually referring to himself. In John's gospel, when Jesus shows up at a Jewish festival, he stands in front of the Jewish festival. He capitalizes on the mediums around them with the, the festival of lights. And he says, I am the light of the world. 
Jesus' message to the world, God showing up and being and moving among the people, trying to take these disciples on this Bible college seminary journey as he's moving to the cross, but the cross hasn't happened yet. Mark is getting us in on the secret of this is how this happened. Jesus was talking in parables, and Jesus, at one moment he's saying, hey, we wanna, I'm going to speak in stories because I don't want them to fully get it because Jesus won't be able to carry out his mission. But then he's also saying, hey, you don't put this underneath. You don't hide this. It is not God's intention to keep you in the dark or to keep humanity in the dark from God's salvation. Do you guys know anybody that's like, yeah, well, why is, why is this stuff so complex? If God really was real, if Jesus really died and rose from the dead, wouldn't there be some proof? In the ancient world, it's no different. They're asking the same question. God is not trying to keep people in the dark, but what we find out is that you have to have faith and you have to be able to hear He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even that will be taken away. Now, I I hate this, because I I know some of you, I think I've lost you completely. That's why you don't preach this on Sunday morning. You just say that Jesus spoke in parables, and he was a nice guy. Which I think Jesus was a nice guy. But... That's not the point of what Mark's trying to tell us. Mark's letting us in on this is how Jesus spoke. Jesus has healed lepers. He's delivered people from demons. He's told one guy that, hey, you're forgiven. your sins are forgiven. Get up, take up your mat and walk. We've all seen that in the first four chapters of Mark. We saw right before Jesus starts teaching in parables, the religious leaders call him Satan. His family says, hey, he's a nut. They come and take him away because, like, he's ruining their reputation. And it says that the Pharisees went out with the Herodians to kill Jesus because he healed the guy with the hand on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is actually saying, hey, you know what? If you can't understand the things of God because you don't actually know God and you don't know the scriptures. To to the person that's actually paying attention to what is happening in Jesus' ministry, you're going to start to understand more. If you keep showing up to follow Jesus, you're going to understand more. But if you laugh it off and you think there's no way that that is the thing of God or that God has shown up in that way, then you're just going to continue to actually move in the dark. And so look at the parable. Look at what he says. For the one who has more will be given. It's more insight. It's more wisdom. It's more connection to God. It's not esoteric. It's not this like hidden thing that God's trying to keep people from getting uh, God's goodness or love or forgiveness. It's just the fact that there's a whole bunch of people that are distracted. There's a whole bunch of people that say, ah, it's not even worth my time. I mean, not, not in 2019, right? Not in 2019, but never-ending scrolling on Facebook of ridiculousness, right? Which I do that, by the way, so I'm not, that's not a judgment. It's just to him who seeks is going to understand more. Let's go to the, the next slide there, Jerry. More stuff about seeds. Continuing from last week. And then Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like. Jesus says this so many times that you start to think, nobody, nobody knows what God is actually like. He's like having to correct their understandings, correcting everybody that's listening's understanding. You thought God was like this? Mm, God's not like that. In the kingdom of the way that God works? Yeah, it's not like you thought. Jesus actually has to bring this up a whole bunch of times. He's saying the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus continues on. Jerry, let's go to the next. More stuff about seeds. Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Again, he's, he's bringing up these, throwing down these parables next to, to people to, to have a contrast. What parable should we use for it? What story should we use? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out larger branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, is anybody confused? Everybody says amen. So you got a farmer that plants and he goes to sleep. He doesn't know how it works, but then there's this harvest that happens. Then there's this thing about this mustard seed that it's the smallest of all the known seeds in the, in the ancient world. And even though it's small, when it grows, it becomes the larger of all the garden plants or shrubs. What are you saying here, Jesus? The religious establishment in the ancient world thinks that there's no way that God would show up like this. There's no way that God would actually die on a cross. Jesus can't come out and say that, and so he's teaching his disciples, he's preparing them. And there's that points in Mark's gospel and the other gospels where Jesus is telling them that he's, in a couple days he's going to be crucified, or he's going to die, or he'll rise again, and they're like, we have no clue what he's talking about. But Mark is writing after the fact, because Mark is in the future. After the resurrection, Mark is writing after the fact and he's looking back and goes, do you remember when Jesus said that? He talked about the farmer that went to bed and he didn't know, he, he didn't know how it all worked. The DNA of the seed that was planted in the ground, there was something that was actually mysteriously happening under the ground, even though it didn't look like anything was happening. That's exactly how God is working in the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly how God is working. Go out this week. Your challenge this week is go find somebody this week. Go find five people this week. And talk to them about God. Then talk about Jesus. Ask them what their thoughts about Jesus are. Ask them about what they think about the Bible. Ask them these questions and start to say, do you think it's real? Do you think this is actually happening? And you turn on the news and you go, there's no way that, God's, that, this, that there's actually something actually happening below the surface. But the reality is that the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, is something that is planted in the ground. Now, we would have thought in the 18th century and the 19th century in America with American Christianity that as we became the Christian nation in the world, that the full eschatological or the end time stuff was going to actually take place. But the reality is, is that we are in the in-between stage. And I know this is long and I'm digressing and I told you I wouldn't do this, but you got to get this with me. How many signs on churches say the end is near? How many programs that you see the end is near? Jesus is coming. Blah, blah, blah. You don't know. Every point in church history, people thought Jesus was coming back in any moment. But the reality is, as farmers sleeping while this thing is in the ground, it is still in the ground. One of my friends on Facebook this week posted a meme, and it had a picture of this funky-looking white Jesus on it. And it said, well, Jesus canceled coming back because now it would just be awkward. That's that sense that we have, that sense of humor that we have. We, we laugh about it because we don't understand it. And we say, well, that Jesus has waited so long, he's not coming back. But the reality is, is that the seeds in the ground, it's all of these things that are going to actually come to fruition. This last part about the seed being going, growing up, this is actually more irony. I love the Bible because the Bible is always flipping my, uh, my religious understanding of things. And he says that it's the largest of the garden plants. Oh, great. 
Jesus' big thing is this garden shrub that's going to grow up. It's it's almost like a weed. This is actually what's going to take place in the world, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though it doesn't look like it's much, is going to take over. It's going to keep moving. Now, this is a transitional period as we move through the gospel of Mark. This last uh, couple verses here. Jerry, if we have that. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. And everybody wants to just go eat lunch right now. I understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. The picture of the birds coming to branch in the shade is that even though it doesn't look like there's something happening in this, there's something that's really crazy happening. The Jewish people thought that God was only for them. But these birds that are going to come, they're actually, the rest of the world are being invited. And this is an insight into uh, Jesus' understanding that the gospel is for all people to come uh, and have forgiveness. Now, I just gave you a ton of stuff. And if you're looking and reading the Bible and you're reading through this, this isn't like every week that we have. It's just we had to go here with this last little parable. Because now we get into some of those fun Jesus stories where he calms the storm and he does these other things that everybody knows. He he breaks the, you know, he takes the kids lunch and makes multiple things. We have all those stories. But this is the groundwork. This is the building up. And if you are interested, I have the other ones recorded. So they're not as crazy as this, I don't think. This is a pretty crazy uh, trying to unpack these riddles for you. And I really love you and I appreciate you letting me have your morning.